Hi, welcome to our Wednesday Night Equip. Those that are joining us online, thank you for being here. Those that are joining us here in the room today, uh, it is great to see you guys. Um, For those that maybe didn't know, I've been out of the country for the last nine days, got back yesterday. Um, My body has no idea what time it is. My brain certainly does not. So uh, if, uh, if I make it through this until 7.30 tonight, I'm going to be very uh, glad for that. And so you pray for me uh, over the next hour as we uh, start this series on the end, a survey of the last things, talking about some end time doctrine, and, doctrine, and I'm going to uh, set that up for us here in just a minute after I pray. So let's pray together. Uh, Father, I thank you um, that... Uh, You've brought me back here. I love these people and I love this place. And um, I I miss being here and I miss being able to teach uh, in this seat uh, when I'm not here. And so I'm grateful for how you, uh, we were able to see you work both on our trip to uh, East Africa and then uh, what I've heard from our team that went to Damascus this last week uh, as well. Thank you, God, for continuing to open those doors again for us uh, to go with the gospel to people that need to hear it. God, would you bless our time uh, tonight? Help me to have um, a clear mind and to be able to focus um, and communicate these, uh, these things well. Um, I pray, God, that you would do a couple of things for us. First, uh, soften our preconceptions of what we feel as if we know is true concerning the things of the end times. Let us um, be teachable and uh, help us to learn well. And second, Father, help us to be gracious with those whom we disagree. I pray that uh, I would even represent the opinions of those with whom I differ with today uh, well, because in the end, we are brothers and sisters in Christ who do not know the future. And so God, I pray that we would do that today. Bless this time in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want to just give a brief introduction to the why of this series, partially because there are going to be people in the months to come on Sunday mornings that I refer back to this four-week series on the survey of last things. The reason I am teaching this on Wednesday nights for the next four weeks is because in July, I will start a series on Sunday mornings uh, we will finish Genesis, and I will start a series in First and Second Thessalonians, which some of you have already heard me say we were doing. And then what's new to probably most of you is when that series is done, I'll, it'll, that'll take us all the way through Thanksgiving. And then I'll do a brief um, Advent series. And in January, Lord willing, uh, we'll then preach through the Old Testament book of Daniel. And that'll take from the, new, from the beginning of the new year through Easter. And in both First and Second Thessalonians and in Daniel uh, are writings about the end times. I am going to preach those texts. When I'm in First Thessalonians and we're talking about um, rapture, which isn't a word that's actually mentioned in the Bible, but it's an idea that's mentioned in the Bible. And when we're talking about that, uh, when we're talking about the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, um, when we're talking about the... Um, 70 weeks in Daniel, Uh, I'm going to preach those from a very specific perspective. Because you see, I'm the one that's responsible for preaching. 
Uh, our elders talk about the things that, that I preach, but ultimately I'm the one that's going to stand up and preach it. And what I'm not going to have time to do during those sermons is to give you all of the alternative positions. I will recognize that there are alternative positions and I'm going to be very gracious in the places that they are. And so a couple of months ago, we were at an elder retreat and having the conversation about those two series. We were talking about First and Second Thessalonians and we were talking about Daniel and we were going through what some of the difficulties would be preaching through those two series, those three books, but I'm, it's really First and Second Thessalonians is gonna be one series for us. And um, one of the elders said, well, why don't you just teach on all of the alternative stuff on a Wednesday night for a little while? So that way we have every, you know, people have been exposed to it and we have a recording of it. So we can always refer people back to uh, the podcast uh, on our website uh, when people ask, ask questions. And I thought, well, you know, that is a brilliant idea. And it wasn't my idea, but I thought it was a brilliant idea. And so that has led to where we are today. If you have come in here or are watching this with us and expecting me to have some like 60 foot chart behind me and tell you, you know, here we are right now and, and then we're going to walk through, I'm sorry to say you're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> okay. My goal in this is to show you what the church historically has believed and how the church has operated uh, with, within disagreement still being the church. Because of all of the subjects of the Bible, there are none that have more disagreement than this. And I'm not talking about now. I'm talking about across two millennia of Christian history the subject of what is known as eschatology. Uh, the eschato, eschatos is the Greek word for last. Um, eschaton is um, the last days, the last time. And so ology, obviously study. So eschatology, the study of last things, the study of end times. Um, th that subject has, has, been, ha has fostered more disagreement than nearly anything else. And here's why. Because none of us have lived through it yet. It hasn't happened yet. And so there's no way to look back on it and say, this is what happened with any, uh, in any kind of definitive way because we don't know. What we can know is what the Bible has told us. But even within that, as we'll talk about tonight, there are very different understandings, very differing uh, ways that people approach those texts, all within the main body of Orthodox Christianity, all right? So I wanna get all of this, or as much of this, and I can't teach all of it in four weeks, but I wanna get as much of it out into your minds as possible so that when I go to preach this, uh, when I go to preach these different things over the course of really what's gonna be the next nine or 10 months, and we're not dealing with eschatology and First, Second Thessalonians and even Daniel, not all of it deals with that. But on those weeks that it does, uh, if you'll come to me and say, well, wait, you said this, but I've always heard like this, I'll be able to say, go back and listen to week two of uh, the, the series on the, the equip series on the end and I address all of those things. So that's, that's my goal, okay? Is to equip you with some basic knowledge information about the varying views that the church has had. Here's where I wanna start tonight though. I wanna start tonight not with, 
the varying views, although I'm going to get to some of those, I'm going to try to play some of the big rocks for you tonight. Um, but where I want to start is what we ought to consider the non-negotiables. If you're a, you know, a regular attender or listener to this, you've heard me uh, on multiple occasions, particularly if you've ever done our Connect class, uh, deal with first, second, and third tier or first, second, and third level doctrines. This is the practice of uh, theological triage, meaning we can place some things in uh, more important categories than others. And as it relates to the doctrine of the end times, there are certainly some doctrines that we need to ascribe as being more important than others. And having this right understanding is really going to help us. There are some things about the end times that we should consider non-negotiable for uh, admittance into Orthodox Christianity. Now, if, if you've heard me teach on, that's on this subject before, you know this. There are a lot of people around the world who will call themselves Christians but won't actually believe what the Bible says about Christianity. Um, now, not everybody that disagrees with us, we automatically mark off as non-Christian, okay? Because there are gospel-centered, gospel-believing, Bible-believing um, faithful churches that may disagree with us on certain subjects. Some of them would be doctrines of the end times, but there are a few things that all Christian churches, and I use Christian in the literal sense there, actual Christian churches that preach the gospel of Jesus according to the Holy Scriptures uh, that we all agree on and have agreed on uh, since the beginning. And I want to start with those things so you don't hear me say that everything in eschatology is negotiable because it is not. There are some things that are non-negotiable, and here are what those things are. I'm going to give you three uh, of them. The first is the future return of Christ. It, we have to believe that Jesus is going to return. The Bible is abundantly clear that Jesus is going to return. Now, we may disagree on the nature of that return, on timing and what's going to happen before it, and what's going to happen after it. But here's what I don't believe we can disagree on. That there will be a visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ. And when it happens, you'll know it. All right? In Acts chapter 1, uh, Luke tells the, uh, really kind of the same story that Matthew writes in Matthew 28. Luke records it at the, at the beginning of his second letter uh, to Theophilus. And uh, he, Jesus is ascended in heaven and an angel appears and says, it says, this is starting in verse 10 of Acts 1. And while they were gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in right roads. These are angels and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Now, how did Jesus go into heaven? Visibly and bodily. Okay, he had a real resurrected body that ascended into heaven from the midst of his disciples. And in that same way, all right, visibly and bodily, Jesus is going to return. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, now there's a lot of symbolism, there's a lot of disagreement over the symbolism in the book of Revelation, but the, the very beginning of that book is not hard to understand. And listen to what John says. John says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So this is what John says. 
everybody, not just a select group, because if all we had was Acts 1, 10, and 11, then maybe it's just followers of Jesus that would see him, right? Because it was only followers of Jesus, uh, as few as they were at that moment. It was only followers of Jesus that saw him ascend. But John makes very clear, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Now, those who pierced Jesus are long dead. So who is represented in those who pierced him? Those who have not been saved, right? So this is representing saved and lost people. Every eye will see them. All the tribes of the earth, meaning somehow, and by the way, I don't believe it's by TV or internet. Like people often want to ascribe modern principles. Jesus is going to return and we're all going to see it. And it's going to be by the power of God that we all see it. That's, that's my take on this, but that everybody's going to see it. Meaning we're, you're not going to miss it. Okay. This is not going to be something that happens secretly and somehow you you didn't hear about it, right? You're not going to wake up the next day and read about in the newspaper that Jesus returned and somehow you missed it. When this happens, you'll know it, okay? The future return of Christ is both visibly and bodily. Number two, there is a future resurrection of all people. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23, Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So just dealing with, with saved people at this point, Paul says there is bodily resurrection, just as there was, a, and this is, the, the argument that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 15 is actually for the bodily resurrection of Jesus and how we can have faith in our own bodily resurrection because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So if you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, which by the way, if you don't, then you do not hold to Orthodox Christianity, all right? And so that's, that's one of those non-negotiables, right? Is the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus which the Bible clearly teaches. And Paul bases his argument for the body of the resurrection of believers off of the fact that Jesus was raised to life, not just spiritually, but bodily, that it was actually his physical, then now glorified body that was resurrected. But we also believe not only in the bodily resurrection of believers, but also of unbelievers, right? So in Revelation, we read, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, From his presence, the eye and the sky fled away and no place was found on them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. Then another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in that book according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So it it is bodily resurrection of believers and bodily resurrection of non-believers. Now, you may end up believing that those two things happen at different times, and that's okay. But you need to get to a place where you can at least say, I, to, to, to hold an orthodox understanding of Christianity, you need to be able to at least say, everyone is going to one day stand before Jesus, all right? In body, believers and non-believers. And that leads us to our third thing is that there is actually a future judgment of all people. Jesus says, and I think Jesus is super clear here. And so I'm I'm trying to rely on just very clear, um, easy to understand text, right? Matthew 25, Jesus says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king, and that's capitalized, this is the father, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So this is Jesus speaking, the king, right, God. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When, you, uh, when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of my brothers, you did to me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fires prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, the same thing, right? Hungry, food, thirsty, drink. You didn't do those things, right? Then they'll say, when? And you say, truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So sheep on the right, go to eternal life. Goats on the left, the unrighteous go to eternal judgment. And these are, now keep in mind what we understand about the gospel. Our righteousness is not found in our own works. Our ability to do any of the things that Jesus has listed in, those, in that list, uh, that list is an outpouring of a changed heart by the power of the gospel. And so this is not a works-based salvation that Jesus is, pre, is proclaiming because it is, it is solely by the, the righteousness of Christ imparted to us at salvation that we become righteous. And those who have become righteous will go into eternal life and those who have not will go into eternal uh, damnation. This is the future judgment of all people. So when I teach our Connect class, if you've been here in the last several years when I've taught that and I'm, I'm teaching on first, second, and third tier doctrine. I actually always refer to end time stuff because I think it's a great example of how we can do uh, theological triage. And I always say, typically use this as an example, um, lots of Christians disagree about eschatology, about end time stuff, but all Christians agree that Jesus will return, resurrect the, the, live, you know, resurrect the dead, and there'll be a final judgment of all people, that we just all can agree on that. These are non-negotiables, okay? So when I, because I'm going to say a lot over the next, this week and then the next three to follow, that uh, we need to hold some of these doctrines very loosely. Uh, many of them so loosely that you can sit on the same pew or in the same small group or even within the same family as somebody who holds it and still be in, in Christian fellowship and unity with one another around the gospel, okay? Uh, we, we, can, uh, we can do that uh, while still holding these, but it is the holding of these in a tight hand that make us able to hold the others loosely, all right? So I am not in any way going to tell you to question essential beliefs of the Christian faith here, but as it relates to eschatology, these that I've listed for you, or what I believe to be the essential beliefs of the Christian faith as it relates to the end times. That Jesus will return, he will return bodily and visibly, we will see that, that there will be a real resurrection of the dead and Jesus will judge the living and the dead and those who are saved will spend an eternity in righteousness or in everlasting life and those who are not will spend an eternity separated from God. This is... Um, what we can say the Bible is abundantly clear on as it relates to uh, the end times, okay? So don't hear me question any of that. Although 
what we're going to spend the rest of this study on is those other doctrines. What may be second tier, which we would call denominational or church level distinctions, or third tier, which would be tertiary doctrines, things that we can all disagree on and, and still even find unity uh, within the same room. I want to give a couple, I want to give three warnings though as we begin this series together. First, it relates to what I've just said, is nearly everything else is going to be either second or third level doctrine. And it's going to be important that you be willing to soften if you are dogmatic. I, I think a lot of damage has been done, particularly in the last half century, maybe more, uh, and particularly in the West, as far as Christianity goes, uh, by dividing churches over es eschatological beliefs that should not have divided us. Uh, you'll notice if you look at our official statement of faith, which is the Baptist faith and message, the things that I described is what is, is, what is in that doctrine. Jesus will return. There'll be a bodily resurrection. There'll be eternal life. There'll be judgment. Like, these are the things that, that we hold dear. To, to take other things that we're going to talk about and to promote them as some have done, even to the point of orthodoxy, meaning if you disagree with me, for instance, on the subject of the rapture and the timing of the rapture, then somehow you're not a Christian. Listen, you, we can't hold that so tightly. And so I wanna warn you against being dogmatic as it relates to some of these other doctrines, which for some of you is likely going to mean, and I don't know this necessarily to be true about anybody in our church, but it may just mean you haven't talked to me about it. And I know how, how deeply held some of these beliefs are for some Christians. And so it may be that for some of you, you do, you do really need to have a softening of your heart, at least opening up to the idea that you may be wrong, <laughs> right? Like, I think that's one of, the, one of the great freedoms that we find in, in, in subjects of eschatology is this. I, I may be wrong. I can't tell you how many times I'm going to say those words over the next four weeks, but I'm going to say them a lot because I may be wrong because it's not happened yet. And because it's not happened yet, I'm, I can't speak with any kind of definitive authority unless I believe the Bible is just abundantly clear. And I've already talked about those things that I think the Bible is abundantly clear on. That's the first warning. The second warning is this. If you're basing your eschatology based off of what you're seeing in the news, you're, you're doing bad Bible study. Okay, if you see something in the news and then go to the Bible and try to make it fit in the Bible, I call this headline eschatology. And I actually think it's one of the most dangerous things in the modern church. And by the way, not just the modern church, this has been going on for centuries. People have been taking what's happening around them and it's so myopic, okay? I maybe not shouldn't have talked about this as jet lagged as I am, because I tend to be a little more free with my words when I'm tired. Um, so I'm just going to go for it. So here we go. Uh, people, are, people get so myopic, meaning I, we get so like, we only think about ourselves, right? So if, if you view something as definitively held within scripture, because it was an American headline, it negates the fact that there are 
7.7 billion other people on the planet that don't live in America and probably don't even know that what you're talking about is going on, okay? So we, 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 need, to have a, we, we need to pull back and get a worldview, a, a bigger picture, and recognize that the majority of Christians don't live where we live, all right? Historically and present day, the majority of Christians do not live in America. Actually, the majority of Christians are not even Western anymore. There was a day that that wasn't true, but it is definitely true now. And so, so we, we need to stop thinking um, so narrowly and, you know, reading the headlines of the newspaper and then flipping to our Bible and trying to shoehorn that in somewhere. And here's why I think that warning is so important. People have been doing it for centuries and every one of them has been wrong. This, I, 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 this idea that people have, have cornered the market on this uh, eschatology truth and they know that these events that are happening and these people are out there, they've been out there my whole life, they've been out there your whole life and they've been out there since before any of us were born. And the, to be able to take the events of your lifetime and shoehorn it into scripture somehow, um, I, I think it's just narcissism because everyone else who has ever done it has been wrong. And to do it now is to say, even though everyone else who has ever done it was wrong, I'm right. And there's some arrogance there, isn't it? So, so I just want you to be really careful that I don't think that's what the Bible is. I don't think the Bible is trying to get you to look at what's happening in our community or our nation and, and find a, some type of parallel there, or at least direct parallel. I do think in some ways we should find some loose parallels, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit tonight. Um, but I don't think we should find direct ones and saying, okay, this is it. So we're in step, you know, 42 and a half. And when we get to 70, it's all, it's all over with. All right. Third warning, no matter where you land in all of this, when we get through all of this, and again, this is, I'm not going to be in four weeks, be able to tell you everything there's to know. Um, but when we get through all of this, I hope you have, you've developed some type of system. You say, you know what? I think I'm leaning this way. Cause I do think you ought to try to make your mind up about this. Right? I, think, I think you ought to be able to say, okay, this is, this is what I think is probably going to be best. And if you, when you do that, um, you need to recognize that all systems have a problem. And here's why all systems have a problem. It's not that we don't believe the word of God is inerrant and that the, whole, the same Holy Spirit inspired every writer of the Bible to write and that there is one truth that, I, that is there. there. There is, I firmly believe that. But when you start drawing from Daniel, which is Old Testament prophecy, uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, which is a sermon held within a gospel, and First uh, and Second Thessalonians, which is an epistle written by Paul to a specific church, and then Revelation, which is John writing to seven churches, and all, and which is apocalyptic writing, and all of those things being different genres of literature written by different people at different times for specific reasons. When you take those things, not to mention other passages like we would find in Ezekiel and other places, and try to, shoo, and try to push all of that into one system, I can promise you this, your system has flaws. It's, it's, gonna, it's gonna have flaws. 
And we need to be ready to admit what our flaws are. So if you wanna come and talk to me about some of this stuff, and because you're convinced that one system's right, you just need to know whichever system you are, even if you're the one that I am, I'm gonna take the opposite position and, and push back on you with what the flaws are. Because every one of them are gonna have some flaws, all right? But I do still think you ought to try to be as convinced in your own heart as you can be while holding some of these things loosely, all right? So those are the non-negotiables and those are the, the warnings that I wanna give. Now let's start talking about some of the, some of the big picture, some of the big rocks. Um, I'm not really spending a whole lot of time answering specific um, question. We're going to get into things in, in the coming weeks, like, um, you know, like the rapture, uh, like, um, um, uh, the antichrist, the 144,000, the, the weeks in Daniel. We're, well, I'm going to talk about some of those things today. What I want to do is give you the big framework, right? And that big framework begins with, these are the non-negotiables that we're going to hold these things together as Christians to be true. There are, some, there are some kind of next level, big picture ideas that are gonna be helpful for us in this conversation uh, as we move forward. I know I'm gonna have time to talk about one of them tonight. I hope I'm gonna have time um, and the stamina to talk about two. The first one is the, the various interpretive views of end times writings. Throughout Christian history, um, Christians, pastors, theologians, scholars, academic types have had really varied views on how we should even read these things, which is why we can say that there are, there, there are very differing outcomes, meaning systems, eschatological systems, uh, end-time doctrines that are derived within these different groups, particularly throughout different periods of uh, the church history because there have been different approaches to how to read the text. And this may be a challenge to some of you. Your way to read the text, as it, particularly as it relates to uh, pr prophetic things um, like the book of Revelation, like uh, portions of Daniel, like the Olivet Discourse, like First and Second Thessalonians, um, your preferred way of reading those things may not, it is not the only one that all Christians hold and it very well may not be the right one. And so we need to look back and think, okay, how have people over the course of Christian history approached these things faithfully, believing they are true? I'm not presenting to you anything tonight that, that people uh, who don't believe the Bible is true would hold. These are all positions held by people who believe the Bible is true. So they would agree with us as a congregation that the Bible is true. But when we get into whether certain things in the Bible are particularly in prophetic scriptures are symbolic or not, or are already fulfilled or not, we're going to find some disagreement. And we can't look at somebody across the aisle and say, well, if you believe that, you don't believe the Bible is true. No, they just may be, believe the Bible is true and saying something different than what you believe it is saying. So there are four ways that the church historically over the course of the last 2000 years have sought to interpret um, end times writings. I'm gonna be very fair to all four 
And in truth, I'm not even going to tell you which one of these I tend towards tonight. I'm going to get into a little bit of that later. I just want to be very, so think about this almost like it's just a seminary lecture, okay? I'm just presenting facts to you tonight. The first uh, is what is known as the preterist view, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. I'm going to spell that because you maybe have never heard that word before. Um, preter, the, the word is derived from, from a word meaning his, history, okay? Meaning in the past. And this is what preterists believe. They believe that the uh, historic prophecies of uh, Revelation and even some of the uh, places in the Old Testament and some of the things that Jesus said, particularly in the Olivet Discourse, uh, which is Jesus's, it's called the Olivet Discourse because it took place on the Mount of Olives. Okay, Jesus was talking and he spent some time talking. Um, this is in Matthew, spent some time talking about the end times. We've read some of the Olivet Discourse tonight. Um, that, that, uh, that these prophetic teachings and writings were only for the original audience, meaning they were going to be fulfilled very quickly so that what, is being, what was being presented by Daniel and in some places in Ezekiel may not have been fulfilled right away in, in, for instance, in the lifetime of Daniel, but began to be fulfilled in the lifetime of Daniel and was already fulfilled by the time we have the closing of, of the New Testament. As it relates to the book of Revelation, Predators would say all of the book of Revelation is fulfilled, in most cases fulfilled in the first century church. And there's some disagreement in the preterist camp um, when it was fulfilled, whether uh, it was fulfilled early, like in, at the destruction of Jerusalem, so uh, in 70 AD, or later during a second persecution of Christians uh, around 95 AD. So there's even within, within all of these camps, there's some disagreement. And within that one, there is some. And then there are even some preterists that say most of it was fulfilled there. And then the rest of it was fulfilled in the fifth century uh, when, when the Roman Empire fell. All right. So this is the way that we would read it, that, that this is the way that they would read the text is that its meaning is derived fully, not partially, all right, but fully. And that's, that's an important distinction that the meaning is fully derived uh, based off of how the first century people for Revelation, first, first and second Thessalonians, Matthew, how those people would have read it and they would have seen the fulfillment in their lifetime. Now, that doesn't mean it's not applicable to us today because that is the way we approach most of the New Testament. When we use what is known as the historical grammatical method, which is the method that I use to interpret the scripture that I preach to you every week, the questions that we ask is, who wrote it? Why did they write it? How did the people that hear it understand it? Right? That really matters for biblical interpretation. When we go to the scriptures, we want to know. When Paul is writing, we, we finished before we were in Genesis, we were looking at Ephesians, right? And I would often talk about what was happening in Ephesus and the reason that Paul had for writing the letter to that church. Because why Paul wrote it and how they heard it really matters for how we're supposed to understand the text. And preterists would say that is also true about understanding um, end times uh, literature, apocalyptic writing in the New Testament and even some in the Old Testament 
that it is fulfilled within the scriptures. So we can see all of the answers for it in the scriptures. Preterist, that's the first. The second is idealist. Now you understand that word, but maybe you don't understand how that would apply here. Uh, So the second is idealist. An idealist sees symbolic representation of the ongoing conflict of good and evil. So an idealist, when they read Revelation, see absolutely nothing predictive at all. So a preterist would say Revelation was at least in some ways predictive, either about like current events, let's say the dom, let's just take the, the later view, let's say in the last decade of the first century, um, during an, an, an extreme per time of persecution of Christians, um, and, and that it was it, that John was either writing about things that were happening right then or things that were about to happen. It was all going to happen in the lifetime of, of those Christians, right? And so it was, it was at least somewhat predictive under a preterist view. An idealist would say, no, that the symbols that you see in the book of Revelation and even some of the symbolism that we see in other places of the scripture that's dealing with the end times is not intended to predict any uh, correlating event, meaning there's no one for one. What an idealist sees is one for a thousand. Meaning weak anybody across all of the ages of Christianity can go to these writings and, and make application because it's all symbolic. And what it's symbolic of is the struggle of good versus evil. It's symbolic of persecution. It's symbolic of tribulation. And it's symbolic of overcoming persecution and tribulation. And this is a regular theme in the Bible. Two weeks ago, I preached, upon, I preached about uh, Joseph in prison, right? Going from the high to the low of prison, then back to the high, right? And it was, this, uh, it was symbolism of how, uh, it, that's a literal event that is showing us some, a pattern in the scriptures uh, of this struggle of good versus evil and how the Lord takes people from the pit and exalts them right? Liberation and exaltation. And that the story of Joseph is just one of many micro or macro stories within scripture that show us this regular event leading ultimately to the resurrection of Jesus. And then finally to uh, the, the final overcoming of evil. And what idealists would say is that's the story that's being told in Revelation. That what Revelation is, is just this highly symbolic apocalyptic writing which is what the book of Revelation is. It is Jewish apocalypse. It's, it, doesn't st- it stands alone in the Bible. It doesn't stand alone in Jewish literature. Within Jewish literature, there is a particularly, let's say the 200 years before Jesus and that 100 years or so until 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. Um, there was a lot, it was one of the most popular genres of Jewish literature. And it is highly symbolic. And this is what they would say, that, that this just gets applied. And so any church can go to this and, and see their own struggles represented there in the text. That is idealist or idealism. The third is historicism, the historicist or historicism. That's a hard word to say, 
but it's got the word history in it. Now you may say, wait, I thought that's what the idealists were, or I thought that's what the preterists were. No, the preterists are long past. What the historicist says is that um, end times literature is symbolically representing actual historic events and people. So it agrees with the idealist, they would agree with the idealist that, that Revelation, for instance, is symbolic, that it wasn't talking about Nero or it wasn't talking about, at least in a direct way, Rome, but what, what, is, what Babylon and all of, these, all of these things that we see, these, these persecutions and judgments, these cycles that we see in Revelation is actually representing what will be the unfolding of all of history. And we really won't know until it's all done how it was all unfolding because some of it has obviously already happened and some of it is happened is, is yet to happen and it's hard to know which, which is which. So this, so, so people that hold to this, this kind of historic view that Revelation has given us, this long historic view of the church age in general has been applied in many different times in many different places to many different events and many different people. This was actually very popular during the Reformation um, because it was easy for the reformers who had adopted this view to apply false prophet ideals to the papacy, right? So it was very easy because they, they were obviously against what was happening in uh, the Roman Catholic Church and in many ways were very right to be against what was happening in the Roman Catholic Church. And so they were able to adopt the, the, some of the false prophet, even antichrist ideas that we see uh, in future uh, or in end times writings and apply it to events. And they were able to apply it to uh, wars that were taking place. They were able to apply it to other events that were taking place. And that actually carried on through the 19th century. This was probably the dominant view within Protestant uh, theology as far as how to interpret uh, end times writings from the 1500s through uh, the 19th century. And uh, it, so it's only been in the last uh, 120 years, 150 years or so that we've really seen a decline in that popularity. And what has risen in its place is the fourth one, and that is the futurist view. And the futurist, and again, you can't paint everybody with this. With, these are broad brush strokes that I'm painting, okay? But in the main, futurists hold to a literal, physical, and global revelation of future events in end times literature. So what... Daniel is showing and what Jesus was talking about and what Paul is talking about, what John is, is writing about is all later. It's all, or at least mainly, still to come. And that we should, this is what a literalist would say, if at all possible, we should read the um, prof, the end, we should read end time prophecy as literally as possible. Meaning if the Bible says something and we can either take it symbolically or we can somehow take it literally, then we need to take it literally. Uh, and that, the, for instance, the numbers in Daniel and the numbers in Revelation are literal numbers. 
that, that these are actual things, right? That if it's seven or 70 or 1,000 or 144,000, that if we can take them literally, we need to take them literally. This was popularized by another movement known as dispensationalism. So it really rose out of Western Christianity. It was popularized uh, by the, within uh, a, a study Bible known as the Schofield Study Bible uh, a little over 100 years ago. And uh, it became the dominant position within evangelical Christianity. And while this, this is one of those unique places where most modern, and when I say modern, I don't mean like necessarily right now, but let's just say over the last hundred years, most scholars, academic types uh, within uh, Western Christianity have not necessarily held to this or held to some type of uh, mediated position of it, the masses have held to it. And it's been popularized not only in um, kind of mass teachings and, and um, uh, churches have even codified this within uh, belief systems and requirements for membership, uh, but it's been popularized in fiction writing, right? Late great planet earth, the Left Behind series. I mean, we have an entire generation who have, got, who have their, their end-time doctrine not based off of Scripture at all, but because a very, very popular book series was written in the 1990s. And people read it. I read them. I read them when they were coming out. I was Listen, I did not read at all. I hated reading when I was a teenager. But I read every one of those books. I was fascinated by those books. And they were actually pretty well written, Right? Um, regardless of if I still today agree with some of the doctrines that are espoused in those books, they were, they were well written. They were, they were entertaining. And people were entertained by them. They made movies by them. And people were like, hey, that really sounds good. It kind of gives us this framework for the future. And so futurism still holds today uh, great sway within uh, mass, at least Western Christianity and even some other places where we have exported that around the world. So preterist, idealist, historicist, futurist. These are very different ways of, of coming to the text. I mean, you've seen, I mean, right? These people are going to, to have significant disagreements. If we're studying Daniel or if we're studying First and Second Thessalonians, we would have really significant disagreements if we were studying Revelation together. But go back to what I said at the beginning. These are all Bible-believing Christians. I, 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 would, I, would, I would firmly place all four of these interpretations of end times writings squarely within Orthodox Christianity. Now, I recognize there may be a couple of you in here that were saying, well, I, I wouldn't. I just, I just can't get on board with the symbolics or I can't get on board with, you know, it was, it was all back then. Well, listen, then, then you're who I'm talking to when I say, you need to loosen your grip on some of your dogma a little bit. Uh, and I'm all for you being convinced in your own mind that you're right. But I, you, you need to be gr more gracious, more generous towards Christians uh, who have disagreed. There are, there are giants of the Christian faith throughout history who have held to each of these. And there are still uh, giants of the Christian faith today men and women across our world who hold these things, probably likely in this room, who hold to at least two, probably three of, uh, of these 
the uh, historicists have, have over the last century or so uh, really taken a beating um, and it is not nearly as popular, but there, there are wonderful Christian people who hold to the other three. And then we look at the reformers and hold the reformers in such great value. And most of them were historicists, right? And, and, and so I want to, I want you to soften a little bit and recognize, which we do have to recognize that the way that we approach the text is going to really drive what we believe it is saying. The last big thing that I want to address is how the millennial reign of Jesus shapes the doctrinal camp that we ultimately will find ourselves in. It's almost as if you have to go to the very end of the book of Revelation, decide what you believe about that, and then work your way backwards. Work your way backwards through Revelation, work your way backwards through the writing of Paul, through the writings of Jesus, through the writings of Old Testament prophets. Because what you believe about the millennium and the nature of the, the millennium that, that we see in, at the end of Revelation, what you believe about that is, is going to kind of put you in a specific camp. Now, there are sub-camps within each, all of, within each of these that I'm going to get to uh, in, some, in some coming weeks. But I want to tell you about the three big, kind of big picture camps that people find them, themselves in and where most of these relate to those first four things. Which is why I'm connected, which is why I wanted to teach about these things all in week one, because really uh, each of these kind of finds itself within uh, mainly one of those interpretive views. The first is known as amillennialism. It's the word millennial with the word A, with the letter A in front of it, which means no, all right, in Latin. The word, you know, A in front of something means no. All right. So what amillennialists believe is that there is no there is no literal millennial kingdom of Jesus. This isn't to say that they don't believe the Bible when it teaches about um, the millennial reign of Christ. They just take the millennial reign of Christ as presented at the end of Revelation as a symbolic period of time, um, most often that we are currently living in. That, it, that it's happening right now, that what's being described is actually uh, the, 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 the church age, that Jesus is reigning now and that we, the church, is, is judging the nations um, alongside of Christ as we proclaim the gospel to them. This is the dominant position and has been the dominant position amongst uh, Catholic theologians uh, pretty much forever. Okay, so since um, really the, the um, uh, I'm losing my, my train of thoughts here, uh, the, uh, uh, the collection of the Catholic Church into like we are now the Catholic Church uh, around the fifth century uh, through today, they, they, have, they have seen the, the Catholic Church, right, uh, as the millennial reign of Christ, that Christ is reigning through that church and that there's not going to be this future time where Jesus reigns in person on earth uh, past like the final, you know, or at least before the final judgment uh, that, is, that is given in Revelation. 
There are also some mainline denominations within uh, Christianity, particularly within um, like Reformed Presbyterian camps, Lutheran camps, uh, those that may be a little more closely tied uh, within mainline Christianity uh, to some Catholic practices that also uh, ascribe to amillennialism. We have amillennialists that go to this church, probably some that are sitting in this room right now. It's, it, there are even evangelicals who hold to this uh, position. Uh, in most cases, these people are idealists. If we want to go back to that previous list, in most cases, they're idealists. They, would, they view uh, end-time literature as this symbolic uh, struggle between good and evil, that we're being encouraged to overcome evil with good, that we're being encouraged to live during tribulation and to live during trial and to overcome that, recognizing that Jesus is ruling and reigning today. The second is post-millennialism. Post-millennialism believes that uh, the millennial reign of Christ is also symbolic, um, meaning it may not be a thousand years, but it is not the same as amillennialism. Some post-millennialists did hold. I say did hold because this is far less uh, dominant worldview today, or end times view today. But post-millennialists tend to hold, most did hold that it would actually be a thousand years or, or at least a very long period of time that the church would grow into, meaning we're not in it yet, but it is something we will get to before Jesus actually returns. So post-millennialists generally have a very positive view of the future. This is the one credit that I'll give to post-millennialists. You, you can tell by the way I'm talking, I'm not a post-millennialist. Uh, but they, they see, or they did see, and some still, there's still pockets of Christianity that hold to this today, um, that, that the gospel is going to have such great effect in our world that eventually it's going to be, it's going to be heaven on earth. And that while there'll still be lost people and there'll still be enemies of the gospel, uh, as we see in, in, um, uh, in the, the end of Revelation, th they are the minority and, and not just a minority, they are a, a vast minority that most people will believe the gospel and it will be as if Jesus is ruling and reigning amongst us today. This, uh, in most cases, directly ties to the historicist understanding that what was being presented in scripture uh, throughout Revelation and other things is this kind of progressive um, persecution of the church until the gospel has spread so much and has had so great of an effect that um, that's now the dominant position. In many cases, um, these people were, were looking kind of to a restoration of uh, a theonomy, right? Where, where we, we, even government recognizes the one true God. There were a lot, there is a lot of um, post-millennialism in American history. There was, a, there was a dominant, there was one time in American history that this was the dominant view. Again, through the, through the 17th, 18th century, um, historicists were kind of still the, the rule and reign of end times theology. And so this is what a lot of people held to. When you go, and, and the idea was all we need to do is get rid of, there was kind of two camps within this. 
There was a liberal camp, and it can, this still doesn't exist today, don't, so don't hear liberal as, as you would hear liberal today. But there was kind of a liberal camp that really applied this socially, meaning we've got to just get rid of social ills. And if we can get rid of social ills, people, because they are generally good, will do generally good things, and things will get better. Then there was kind of a more conservative camp that saw, no, it's really going to be through heart change that, that this happens. But both of them saw bad things that happened around the world as uh, when, when good would overcome evil, it was just one step closer. This is where we get the words to the battle hymn of the Republic from. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And you know what that was written about, right? That was written about the removal of slavery, the conquering from the North of the South, the removal of slavery during the Civil War. There were people during the Civil War, it was actually a dominant view during the Civil War of the end times, that the last great scourge on earth was slavery. And the last great scourge, particularly on God's blessed nation, America, was slavery. And that if we could get rid of slavery, we were going to then ascend to this millennial reign. So when they wrote, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, that was writing about the Northern army coming and that this was it, that once this happened, we would be in the millennial reign of Christ. Well, 150 years later, we can look back on that and go, I don't think that's right. Because we're looking back through terrorism, we're looking back through Vietnam. We're looking back through Korea War. We're looking back through World War II, World War I. It was really during World War I and World War II that this fell out of... People, people watched what happened in trench warfare in World War I. And you know what the conclusion they came to? Things are not getting better. They're getting worse, right? And so that's when the historicist view and the post-millennial view fell out of the mainstream, because people finally recognize things are not getting better. They are just getting much worse. Now, that's not to say that there aren't post-millennialists still today. There are pockets of them within Reformed Presbyterianism. There are, even though it's not the dominant view within Reformed Presbyterianism, there is a sect within that that still would hold to that and some others. The final is known as premillennialism. Premillennialism, like post-millennialism, believe Jesus would return at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. Premillennialists believe Jesus will return at the beginning of the reign of Christ. That there will actually be a physical bodily reign of Jesus on earth, lasts for a thousand years. Not all will be believers during that time, but that most will be and most will faithfully serve Jesus. That believers will rule and reign with Christ, that we will judge over the nations during this time and that Jesus will reign on earth in body, that this will, this will be uh, the historic validation of the throne of David, that the throne of David will be established in Jesus. Now, again, like there are in some of these others, uh, there are differing camps uh, within uh, premillennialism. I will say premillennialism is the dominant view within evangelical uh, Christianity and has been for the last century or so. I will also say that premillennialism was also the dominant view in the early church before, um, uh, really within the first, the second and third century. Everybody's gonna claim their view is the dominant view of the apostles, okay? Everybody's gonna claim that because they're obviously going to the writings of the apostles to make their case. 
But in the second and third century, premillennialism was kind of the dominant view that, that the early church fathers, Origen, um, Clement of Rome, these, these, some of these early church people up until the time of uh, uh, Augustine of Hippo, uh, he wasn't a premillennialist, but the ones that preceded him were. And they just kind of took for granted that there, were, there was going to be this future return of Christ and he was going to establish the Davidic throne. The more the church became the Catholic church, the, the, le, the, the more this fell out of uh, popularity. And then it rose again with the rise of dispensationalism. Now I know it's 730, but I'm gonna get through the end of this and I'm almost done. Dispensationalism, dispensationalism which is a unique view, which I'm going to deal with at another time, rises in uh, American Christianity and brings back premillennialism, this idea that Jesus is going to return and establish a, uh, a temporary but long time thousand year uh, earthly reign on the earth. But because, his, because there was this first, this was the second, third century understanding of premillennialism. And there is now this dispensationalist understanding. This premillennialist camp is really broken into two. One is historic premillennialism. It's how the early church fathers saw it. And the other is what is known as pre-tribulation premillennialism, or also known as dispensational premillennialism, uh, which has been the dominant view uh, with particularly within American Christianity for the last century or so, particularly amongst the masses. It was the one that was popularized within um, like the writings of uh, the Left Behind series. And what that has to deal with is when, so you have the premillennial, meaning before the millennium, but when does Jesus actually return? So that leads to the question of when will the rapture actually take place? And the rapture is my subject for next week. All right, so I'm not, going to, I'm not going to give you all of those positions. I just want you to think about the millennium and think about its relationship with these interpretive views, right? So amillennialists tend to be uh, idealist. Uh, Postmillennialists tended to be either preterist or historicist. And premillennialists tend to be futurist. There is some overlapping of these camps. And again, we paint with broad brushes and sometimes we paint with broad brushes, we hit people on the margins. And so if you hold to one of those things, maybe you've already made up your mind and you're like, well, I'm an idealist, but I'm also a premillennialist. Well, you're probably not, okay? Um, <laughs> because you've, you've, you've bought into two systems that are probably too much at odds with each other. But sometimes you find these unique people on, on the margins. But in the main, the, these ways of going to the scripture end up influencing the way that we see the millennium and the way that we see the millennium then influences things back from that. So let me end here with recommending some books to you. I'm gonna recommend uh, books several weeks. I'm gonna refer to some of these books and I like recommending books on, on Wednesday night. The first, if you just have no idea, for the person in the room that just says, I didn't understand a single thing this guy said. And I can't tell you if you should have or not, because be honest with you, I'm not sure that I'm understanding myself right now. I'm seeing two of each of you, okay? 40 questions about the end times. This is in a series called 40 Questions. I can wholeheartedly recommend every book in this series. 
I've recommended some of these 40 questions books before they have 40 questions about elders, uh, 40, 40 questions about uh, creation. I, th- these, are, these are great books. They're written by biblical scholars, evangelical scholars, um, and this answers 40 of the biggest questions, right? So if you just, if you need really a good baseline, this, this is probably a, a great book for you. There are two books that I don't have with me that are in a series called the Counterpoint Series. It's published by Zondervan, uh, which is a popular Christian publisher. Um, the Counterpoint Series, one is um, on the book of Revelation itself and one is on the rapture either one of those books and it presents either three or four different positions. Sometimes it's four views on, sometimes it's three views on. And then each person presents theirs and then critiques the others. These are pretty scholarly, but if you like really wanna delve into uh, some of these, you know, so the, the idealists, the historicists, how people have done this, th- those books are gonna, are gonna help you do that. If you say, all right, well, I kind of already know which one of these things I am, I'm an amillennialist, I'm a premillennialist, I'm a dispensationalist. If you already say, I kind of know which one of those things I am, but I'd really like a book that gives me the whole framework, right? I'm gonna give you what I think are the best books in those camps, okay? The first one is, if you're an amillennialist, you think this whole thing is symbolic, Jesus is gonna return, judge the living and the dead, we're gonna have the new heaven and the new earth. The best book I have for you is called Kingdom Come by Sam Storms. All right, it's a good book on being an amillennialist. All right, this book almost convinced me to be an amillennialist, but I'm not one. But you could be. It's a fine thing to be. And that's a really good book on it, okay? The second is A Case for Historic Premillennialism. This is a call to return to what the early church fathers actually believed. All right? This book helped reaffirm what I believe after I read this one, if you really wanna know what I am, all right? It's by uh, Craig Bloomberg and Sung Wok Chung, all right? I hope I got that last name right. Craig Bloomberg and Sung Wok Chung. Uh, and it's actually called An Alternative to Left Behind Eschatology, all right? So it's still premillennial, but it's just not that kind of premillennial. And if you say, I am a dispensationalist, pastor, I am... I believe, you know, I I grew up on the Schofield Study Bible. I'm a dispensationalist. Here would be my request. Be this kind of dispensationalist. This is called progressive dispensationalism. There are some phenomenal things in this book. This book presents the now, not yet, which I read this book when I was in seminary almost 20 years ago. Uh, It was new then. And I read this book then, and that was where I came to the understanding of what is known as now, not yet. And I'm going to talk more about now, not yet in the weeks to come huge proponent of now, not yet. And this book is where I got that from. This book really softens dispensationalism. So some of you, if you're like a traditional dispensationalist and you really kind of have some hard and fast things, I would encourage you to read this book, read it slowly. And what it's gonna do is it's gonna soften you. You'll still be a dispensationalist when you get to the end, uh, but you're not going to be as hardcore about it as you were. So if you're gonna be a dispensationalist, be this kind. And all three of those, all three of these books, I think fit within evangelical, orthodox Christianity. They're all great books. If you are one and wanna know what others believe, 
buy one of the others and, and read it and it, it, it'll help you out. And if you're just really like, I need kind of a basic primer, 40 questions. The good thing about the 40 questions book is you don't read it in order. You can actually just take your questions and my biggest question is on, you know, this. And then, and then you can go, go read about it. All right, I've gone seven minutes long, so I'm gonna have to stop or our thing's gonna time out and our childcare workers are gonna get angry with me. So let me uh, pray for us and we'll be done. God, thank you that uh, we can hold fast to this truth that Jesus will return. Be it tomorrow, a thousand years from now, we can hold this truth. Jesus is coming back. We won't miss it. We'll see it. If we're alive, if we're dead, we'll be raised to life and be like you forever. Thank you, God, for that truth. Let us hold firm to that uh, and let us be convinced in our own hearts about how we should approach end-time doctrine, end-time literature. Uh, let us read it and study it while also being gracious as other believers, other uh, men and women of the faith come to differing conclusions than us. Um, thank you, God, uh, for getting me uh, through the last hour. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. To those online, thank you for joining us. Look forward to having you back uh, next week.